For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Out of the 20 kings of Judah, only eight are good, and Josiah is one of the best. Part of the reason he's able to do so much for the Lord is that they find an old copy of the Bible which they hadn't read for a long time. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Josiah Finds the Book. Alrighty, good evening, let's dive in. The 22nd chapter of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 22, we're going to pick up where we left off, as we usually do. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we just know that there are just life-changing truths in your word. Tonight, you have a will. You have ordained for us to be present in this moment together, here with your wonderful Holy Spirit, who lives in our hearts and inhabits the praises of your people. So we pray Father God, that your very spirit would direct these truths straight to our hearts and open the eyes of our understanding as we've been singing and worshiping about, Lord, that that we could see your truth, see Jesus and the good news and, and be changed by what we learn here tonight by applying it in Christ's name. Amen. When we last left off, we had wicked King Manasseh. Uh, he had passed away. He had already been laid to rest now. Uh, he reigned for 55 years, you, you'll recall, uh, the longest of any king of uh, Israel or Judah, and most of that was wicked, as you'll remember. So after a life of unparalleled evil, and then right at the end, after a lot of cruel suffering, because the Assyrians came and took him uh, to Iraq or Babylon, um, he got saved. And you recall that it was wonderful. He humbled himself. He cries out to the Lord after a wicked, wicked life. And uh, the Lord amazingly heard him and responded to his genuine repentance. And and just the wonderful grace of God that we sing about every uh, Sunday. Uh, God allowed him to be released from um, Babylon uh, after he got saved. And you'll recall, he came back to Jerusalem to kind of undo some of the damage that he had done uh, during those terrible years that he was sinning against the Lord. Now, there was one place, and he was fairly effective. He he did a lot of uh, uh, fixing things up. But there was one place that he was really powerless to reverse any damage, and that was in his son's heart, Amon. Amon now has ascended to the throne, and uh, he kind of, the jello has already set, you know, as it were, and he was more impressed with dad's uh, bad boy image uh, and his rebel without a cause day uh, than his final days when dad was seeing the light and humbly repenting. Now, the last little paragraph that we left off Uh, just really summed up Amon's uh, two-year brief reign. And so I'll just tell you what it says, and we can dive into chapter 22 uh, fresh. 
Uh, but at the end of 20, chapter 21, it records that King Ammon now replacing his, his uh, repented father, though he was wicked most of his life, uh, he was just as wicked as his father in his uh, sinning heyday. And so uh, he was assassinated after two short years by his own cabinet members. And so the Bible doesn't say why. Uh, probably a good guess would be because the Lord didn't want to lose some of the reforms that um, King Manasseh, had. after he repented, he came back and he was putting in a lot of reforms, making a big difference. Uh, but now that he died and the bad boy son was already starting to reverse that again. And so um, maybe that was the, the way the Lord was dealing with wanting uh, to have revival in Jerusalem, uh, not idolatry. And uh, also, it looks like God thought that his eight-year-old son, Josiah, would make a better king than he would. So, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedadah, Jedadah, daughter of of, you know what? It's right there, duh. <laughs> Jedidah, his mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. All right, she was from Bozkath. Yeah, you've all been there. It's right next door to Winnemucca. <laughs> he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And so we're going to pause there. Uh, so number one, walking in God's ways. Uh, he's going to reign for 31 years. Uh, now, children who ascend the throne, I mean, he finds himself king and he's eight years old. Of course, he's not reigning and making decisions. He has advisors and all of that. But uh, he is aware that he is now the king. And so uh, introducing good king Josiah. And uh, out of all, out of 20 kings of Judah, only eight are good. And so we welcome this good king Josiah for at least one or two chapters of refreshing blessing. Amen. And it's nice to see uh, somebody uh, revering the Lord, doing what's right, and being blessed and being a blessing to others. And so, you know, it says like father, like son, but only the father here is listed as King David, who's already been in heaven for 400 years. And so uh, this interesting description, here's his mother's name, and he did was right in his, walking in the ways of his father, David. Well, we just know that his biological father was assassinated, and he was a wicked man, a, a terrible example. But this has caught my attention again. So if, you, if you'll indulge me just a minute, just to preach a small sermon on this understanding theologically that our spiritual heritage is more important than our family of origin. I think it's really important. Uh, Josiah was more like King David, who really is his great-grandfather times 16. So if you put 16 greats in front of grandfather, you will have a biological connection. But really, uh, the idea here is because he acted in the same way David did, and David was a man after God's own heart, because he followed 
in that kind of behavior, he proved that he was spiritually more connected to King David and the godly line than his own true biological father, which has always interested me. Biology really doesn't define who we are, the eternal us. The Bible puts way more emphasis on our spiritual heritage. In fact, what Jesus said in John 6, you remember, he said, flesh and blood count for nothing. It's just temporary. It's just a temple. It really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on anything. And so that's kind of good news because we all get kind of born into dysfunctional families. I mean, everybody's family is sort of dysfunctional because we were born into the Adams family, right? <laughs> and anybody related to Adam, uh, the, the first Adam, not Adam Wilson, uh, is, is totally uh, got some issues, amen? So, so, so who we take after spiritually will have more bearing on your eternal destiny uh, than anybody else, and even blessing in this life. Let me go on just a little bit more about this, because it's, uh, what's got me talking about it is a comment somebody made that we're all God's children. And so I want you to be, and that's a common phrase, I want you to have some theological uh, response to when you hear that said. Uh, when... Jesus was told in Matthew chapter 12, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he said, really? Who, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? The ones who do the will of God, the will of the Father, those are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. Wow. He said, what was he saying there? The same point I'm trying to make. It's about spiritual heritage. It's about who your behavior links you to. And really, you only have two choices. There are only really two fathers that the whole race of us can, um, can come from. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7 and Romans 9 and verse 8 say, for example, that we can be Abraham's child even though we're not Jewish. So you can be a descendant of Abraham because you're a Hebrew or you're Jewish or biologically, or you can believe the same way Abraham believed and got saved and act like Abraham did. And therefore, those two verses I cited said, you can call yourself a, a child of Abraham because like father, like son, like daughter. And so beyond that, as I was saying, there's only two fathers you get to choose from, God or the devil. Uh, there are two fathers, and therefore there are two kinds of children. And where do I get this information? From Jesus' heated conversation in John chapter 8 with the Pharisees who were plotting to kill him. A very revealing conversation, a bit harsh. It is heated, uh, and here it is. So they had just said, they had just said, uh, they're talking about Abraham. How we're, we're descendants of Abraham and God is our father. And so God, Jesus has to put them in place and give them this understanding, which I'm trying to uh, preach now. As it is, you, you're determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do that. You're doing the thing your father does. We are not illegitimate children. By the way, that's a slam against slandering Mary. He's saying, oh, 
they're saying, we're not illegitimate children like you are. Because remember, she was found to be pregnant and they said, oh no, it's not really. They didn't really do anything, you know. And of course you didn't. Well, that's a line right there. The only father we have is God himself. See, we're all God's children. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now here I am. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. The one you're claiming is your father. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to, oh, your father. Wow, Jesus just has no fear of anybody. He just says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. See, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's saying, your behavior in that you want to kill me uh, is reflecting your spiritual heritage and your connection to the murderer. Because like father like son. And so, you know, you really only get two things. I'm going to go ahead and give you one more example of that. You, you just tell somebody, listen, we, can, we are all God's creation, but we can be adopted into his family to all who received him. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God, not born in the natural way, but born of God. That is John chapter 1 and verse 12. I think you're, you're getting to see what I, I'm trying to get at here. I can't resist. One more thing. The, the son of Hamas, and we will finish the chapter tonight. It will only be two hours, but we'll get there. <laughs> the, son, the son of Hamas, I've used this illustration uh, before. His name is Mosab Yusef, and he is the father of, of, of the, he is the son, rather, of the founder of Hamas, a, a terrorist organization that is bent on the destruction of, uh, the, uh, of the state of Israel. Now, he was being groomed to take over his father's leadership of Hamas, but he got saved, right? And so now he, he's called the son of Hamas, but he's not the son of Hamas. He tur- it turns out that he's actually the, the child of Abraham, a son of uh, of the father. So, uh, you know, it comes down to one question and we move on. Really, who's your daddy? That, that is really, the, <laughs> that I just couldn't resist it. I couldn't. I tried. I wrote it down with a question mark. Should you or shouldn't you? And I did. <laughs> who's your daddy? You've got two choices. The father of light or the father of lies. The father of light. Yeah. And don't tell us who your daddy is. Show us, because this means nothing. It means nothing. It can mean something if the walk matches the talk, but if not, man. So, so we see by Joseph, by Joseph. Oh man, by. Thank you. Come on up here, please. You'll do a lot better than I. By Josiah's life and actions, he proved himself to be a son of the father and a follower too of David as his father. Verses three through seven. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent, he's 26, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of 
Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work of the, on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. Well, let's pause there. Uh, now we've seen uh, walking in God's ways. Now, number two, doing God's work. Now, if you're walking in the ways of the Father, you're concerned about what he's concerned about. Listen to that. If you're, if you're claiming that God is your Father, then of course you're interested in what the Father is all about. Just like Jesus said at 12, uh, didn't you, weren't you aware that I'd have to be about my Father's business? And so he's about his Father's business, and, and, and that is the respect uh, to keep the temple in Jerusalem um, up, the, the upkeep there to keep it uh, in a place of comfortable and uh, worship in, in the right way. So he's going to repair the temple there. Now, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34 is the parallel uh, companion chapter, and it gives you a little bit more information. Josiah starts early getting serious with God. And so it tells us a little bit about his life before he starts at 26 to make these uh, repairs and this project on the temple. Uh, he was 16, 2 Chronicles 34 tells us, when he began seeking the Lord. Now, that's interesting. You know, 16 years old, he could be doing a lot of things, but he's learning how to seek the Lord. Uh, Old Testament professor Selman uh, put define seeking the Lord this way. Seeking in Chronicles describes the habit of looking to God in every situation and also the attitude which God looks for in those who pray. Now, it's so sad when society and parents or young people themselves just kind of dismiss the teen years as, you know, they're teenagers and, you know, uh, not really expecting much out of them, uh, spiritually speaking. Uh, but before they were 20, David was killing giants. Mary was conceiving the Messiah and Samuel was hearing God's voice. And so here's this kid at, at 16. He's beginning to take God seriously. So raise your hand if you are under 20 tonight. All right, nice and high. There's quite a few of you. You know, never stop to think, never think. You loved doing that, didn't you? All of you. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it's not that funny. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that, you know, just saying Take, take these years and be serious with God and build some momentum and, and uh, you will set your life on a good trajectory. And now's the time uh, to do that. So uh, at 16, he starts seeking the Lord. And then at 20, 2 Chronicles 34 says that he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and, and tore them down, smashed them to pieces, and ground them to 
powder. So he spent years just um, cleaning the place up, getting rid of all of that terrible idolatry. Um, one writer said, evidence of seeking God, growing uh, spiritually, uh, is when we um, show it in our behavior, uh, smashing sinful things into pieces. Changes in how we live means something's happening in our hearts. And so uh, verse 3 says six years later now, uh, at 26, he begins this project to repair uh, the Lord's temple there. He's got some momentum going, but you'll notice first it's cutting out the sin and then it's addressing drawing near to God. So that's the Christian life. It's not just what you don't do. You know, I'm a Christian, I don't, and then fill in the blank. You know what? A lot of Buddhists can say they don't do what you don't do too. So it's not just what you don't do, it's what you do do. Whatever. Right? It's what, so it's both. So he goes out and he's taking away the sin, but now he's concerned about drawing near to God and, and pursuing the Lord in that way. And so uh, action uh, is taken to honor uh, God's sanctuary. Now, verses three and four just say that Josiah dispatches his admin guide to the temple, you know, and uh, he has this, the high priest, Hilkiah, begin the project. Now, Hilkiah is the father of somebody you will recognize in the Old Testament, a famous prophet. Anybody know? Hilkiah is the father of Jeremiah, the prophet. So if you read Jeremiah chapter one and verse one, it tells you that Hilkiah is his papa. Now, uh, so that's pretty awesome. So Josiah knew that the work to repair and rebuild the sanctuary uh, needed organization and funding. And so uh, he began the project. Now, in verse four, you'll find that boxes uh, were at the entrances of the temple for free will offerings for God's people. Um, very interesting. And uh, those funds provided the funding for the materials. In verse six, you see the prepared lumber and the smooth cut stones from the quarries, and then also to pay the workers, the carpenters, the uh, stone masons, and the construction guys. You know, they used the money. That, were, that came into the boxes by the entrance of the doors to take care of the ministry. Now, it's been 2,650 years, and we still do the same thing. That's where we get the, uh, uh, the structure of how the ministry operates is from uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, worship and the word of God. So I like verse seven that says, no worries about these guys, by the way. He just sends a message, says, don't worry about elaborate um, record keeping. These guys are golden. What a way, that's the way it has to be with God's people. You know, I'm not saying you don't keep records. I'm saying that the, the point that he's making is that these guys who are dealing in these kinds of matters are men of integrity, and so that's the point there. And uh, I just want to say we're blessed in the same way because the same thing is happening here. There are boxes, there are givers, there are free will offerings, which is all 
of the offerings are free will offerings. And they supply the needs of the sanctuary, the rent, the utility bills, uh, the salaries for, for the ministers and all of that. And it's the same thing. And because there are men uh, of integrity who fear the Lord, who administrate those gifts properly and with the fear of the Lord, uh, God is working among us. Without free will offerings or the faithful stewardship of those offerings, nothing goes on in any ministry. So we, we just praise the Lord for his blessing. 8 through 13. Jeremiah's pops, the high priest, says to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law, it's just the scroll of God's words, probably Deuteronomy or a section of Deuteronomy, in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the admin guy, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, oh, and Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. (laughs) And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in there concerning us. So number one was walking in God's ways. Number two, doing God's work. Number three, obeying God's word. And if you don't know God's word, then how are you going to do one and two? How are you going to walk in God's way or do his work if you don't know what he requires? (laughs) Uh, And so we're going to take a look at that now. So during the remodel and repair, somebody stumbled upon, what's this thing, you know, under some, you know, clutter there in the temple? How sad that the Bible can be lost in the church, as it were. You know, now I I wrote that down and I just thought, uh, yeah, it happens every Sunday where there's no Bible. And what do you have? You have some kind of social gospel or some kind of political thing going on or some kind of positive thinking thing or some kind of encouragement that just has principles. Or opening a Christian book, and I know I mention it a lot, but it's all around in this county. Opening a Christian book instead of the Bible. The Bible's lost in the sanctuary. It's the same sort of idea here. That would be kind of like, you know, uh, losing the medical journals at the, at the med school, right? Or how about this one? You'll like this one better. Losing, losing the Constitution in the Capitol building. <laughs> oh, yeah, no comment. <laughs> I didn't say anything, did I? People... Uh, attend church, they need to hear the word of God. It's always been that way from day one. Let me just read this to you. These are the commands, reading from Deuteronomy. 
Decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me, Moses, to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. Listen, he goes on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. These commandments that I give to you today, listen how front and center. They're to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your uh, gates. Now, the Jews took this uh, literally, and you know the Pharisees. And even today, if you go to Israel, you'll see the little boxes on their forehead with the verses from Deuteronomy on their forehead and tied around their hands. Just like it says, he's saying, he's not saying, write it down and put it on your forehead. He's saying, Keep them close to you at all all times, like tying a string around your finger, and they actually have done kind of that. The other thing that they do, the same thing, is if you've gone to an observant Jew's home, you'll see a little metal thing that that looks like a scroll on their door post. It's called a mezuzah, right? And what it is, it's a little, it looks like a little uh, book. It's, It's a bookend, but it's the law. It's Deuteronomy. So they're saying, look, God told us to put it on our doorpost. So we did. But we don't, we don't obey it. We don't read it. But it's on the door. It's on the hand. It's on the forehead. Uh, I think he was talking about something else. From day one, the word of God, which man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've got to have the word of God. And, and we'll just take a look at it here. So the high priest in verse 8, finds the scroll, gives it to the king's admin guy, reads it himself, and says, I think Josiah, the high priest says, I think Josiah would want to see this book. Now, what did he find? Well, he found a section of the scrolls of Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy 31 said, God commanded that Deuteronomy be kept in the temple. So that scroll was in the temple. Also, uh, Deuteronomy 17 says that the book of Deuteronomy was to be personalized for every king had to have his own copy so that he knew how to reign and rule and serve the people and please the Lord. So the king was supposed to have his own copy, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 31. It was supposed to be kept in the temple for public reading Every seven years at the feast of what was called booths or tabernacles. So at one of their Jewish holidays, every seven years, all of Israel would come to Jerusalem and there would be reading and reading and reading of Deuteronomy. Well, let me just tell you how good they did at that. In Joshua 8 is the first public reading of the book of Deuteronomy. 500 years later is the second one. They just skipped a few years in there, you know? And and so somebody was cleaning out, you know, what's under here? Should we give it to Goodwill? I don't know. What What does it say there, you know? And there it was, the book of the laws of 
the Lord of, of blessing. How do you serve God if you don't know what's required? How do you correct your ways if you don't know where you err? How do you please him if you don't know what he desires? How do you know you're living right and going to heaven and that you're even saved? How would you know? How do you know that you're not just fooling yourself and you think you are? How would you know that? You don't, unless you're familiar with the word of God. Amen? So notice something extremely important, verse 11. He hears, Josiah hears the word, right? And he's shocked. Is Josiah some kind of wicked, ignorant sinner? No. He's a good, he's one of the best kings that they have, right? He's already been seeking the Lord for 10 years and cleaning up Jerusalem like a madman, grinding things to powder. And when he hears the verses read, he Jesus, when you tear your robe, you're expressing horror or just disbelief and astonishment and grief. He hears a little bit of the Bible. Here's a godly guy. He loves the Lord, but he's shocked. Why? Because he's doing the best he can. He's a good guy overall. He remembers some things grandpa said, but he's not in the word. So when he hears the word and the details that either make or break your Christian life and your walk with God, he shocked and appalled him. What did that say to me? And so there are so many people who are basically good and they know the Lord and they got the basics down, but they never read the details. They're not reminding themselves every day. And they just start to drift and think, well, I think I remember that and I think I'm doing okay and I know that that's wrong. That's a big one, you know, and I know that that's right. But you don't know all the details. And it's just like, like if you did, you would be shocked. You say, whoa, you know, you know, he who strays from the path winds up in the company of the dead. You know, what things about uh, uh, he who trusts in himself is a fool. I mean, let just, just, oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah, of course you forgot about it because you haven't been reading it. And there's so many, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of details that shape our thoughts and our lives and our tongues and everything about us, our attitudes, our worldview. But we're just kind of, we just go on fumes. And fumes aren't enough because when you get the real deal, you're like, where have I been? What am I been thinking? Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only Anything that edifies. Let no unwholesome word proceed. Oh, forgot about that one. So you just let stuff fly, uh, you know? Taking every thought captive and making it obey Christ. Whatever things are true and right and just and noble and worthy of praise and excellent, let your mind dwell on these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. Have no anxiety about anything but in everything by prayer supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and then the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus oh, I forgot about that well because you haven't read Philippians 4 in a long time right you still love me <laughs> all right I'm just checking because some of your faces were like, if you keep talking, I'm coming up there. 
it's important, the word of God. Now, I do want to say this. Verses 9 through 10. Notice Shaphan's lackluster reaction compared to the king. Because Hilkiah hands the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan, the, the business admin guy, he reads it, right? He, he's the secretary. He reads it, but then he goes to the king. And after he's done talking about, hey, king, yeah, so the monies and the officials and the overseers, and oh, yeah. And lastly, he gave me a book. Now, he doesn't despise the word of God. He thinks it's valuable. He's just not real excited about it. That's a problem. That's how it all goes bad. I just pray all the time, God, help me to love your word. Soften my heart. When I find myself and my heart getting hard to the things of God or I just getting weary about certain things spiritually, I just, I just get, I, I'm real about it and I say, God, change the desire of my heart. I just can't force myself to do certain things. I want my heart to prompt me to do. Even then, I still have to do it if I, if I know it's the right thing to do without the emotion or without the prompt, but I want the prompt. Makes it a lot easier, amen? So Shaphan ought to say, hey, I read it. You know, imagine Shaphan, he gives it to the king, he reads a little bit of it, and the king goes, ah, starts to weep, and he's like, coming undone. And Shaphan, what was Shaphan's reaction? Shaphan was like, what? What's it? I just read the same thing, you know? He didn't have a response because he didn't read it with faith and a soft heart and taking some time and saying, speak to me. What are you saying to me, this living word? Instead, he just read it. You know what? Oh, this is interesting. And then went on with his construction project, right? Uh, It doesn't mean he's not saved. It doesn't mean he's not a good guy. He is a good guy and he's saved. It's just not real excited about spiritual things. When we read the word of God, one writer said, we must read with faith, with soft hearts, with ready obedience to to humbly submit ourselves to its authority. Our quest is not more information, but rather to comply our lives with the truth within. Just a couple weeks ago, somebody after service, just a visitor, say to me, you know, I got a lot of problems with the Old Testament. And, and so here's my standard answer. Sir, the Old Testament has a lot of problems with you. <laughs> and you, how dare we little grasshoppers say, look up to heaven, to the God who made the universe by speaking and say, you know what? I have a lot of problems with the Old Testament. (laughs) You are never going to get anywhere with God raising your eyebrows, but bowing your knees may help. Amen? I'm not saying there's nothing hard to understand about the Old Testament or about the nature of God or the judgment of God and all of that. But you do, you have those concerns with a humble heart of humility before the living God. It's his word. Don't stand in judgment of God's word. That word will judge us 
on that day. Amen. So, you know, Siobhan's like, here's a book. I don't know. I found it. He said, you might be interested in it. I read it. This is all right. Okay. So the word, as Dave Galindo and I like to say, we've been saying it for 10 years, the word does its work. You know, whenever you, you bring out the word, Isaiah chapter 55 says, you know, I've sent my word. It will not return to me void, but will accomplish the, the purpose for which I sent it. So uh, it, it, it was sent into the king's heart and it accomplished what it needed to do. All scriptures God breathed, whose purpose is teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in how to be right with God in order that we might serve him productively. Second uh, Timothy chapter three, and that's what happened. So he's upset. And here's a paraphrase of what he got out of the section of Deuteronomy that he read. We and our fathers before us are not living in right relationship with God. We're missing the mark. And that can only spell disaster. So notice also verse 13. Uh, though he's a godly man, he seeks, and he seeks God, right? Remember, we already told you he seeks God. But he's convicted. He, he's overwhelmed. He feels the responsibility to other people that he leads, that look to him. And so he says, get me some godly counsel. It's okay to do that. Get some godly counsel. That's what he says. He says, God has given us gifted people. Go, go ask them what we should do now in light of finding the truth here. 14 through 17. So Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah. Very interesting prophetess because there are not many in the Old Testament. So she's really a, a, just a stand-up gal here, kind of a hero, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikba, the son of Harhas, keeper of the war, war, wardrobe. I can, this is harder than anything else. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. I love the details. When I read a detail like that, I'm like, I believe the word of God. There are just certain little phrases that are tossed in there. Like when Paul raises his hand to speak. It's like, oh, that was an eyewitness. What are you? you know, it's little things like that. I don't know. I'm strange, but that's what I... I this is what the Lord, she says, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. Bad news. <laughs> I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. According to everything written in Deuteronomy, yes, it's going to happen. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all the idols their hands have made, my anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Wow. So number four, now hearing God's voice. And it's not always pretty. You know what? Uh, we want a pretty uh, sugar-coated gospel these days, uh, but the voice of the Lord sometimes is harsh. Uh, when you disrespect the Lord, when you disregard truth, when you spurn his love and his sacrifice, when we do evil things or flagrantly sin, uh, it can bring devastating results. And we reap what we sow, and sometimes the voice that comes back is not pleasant, but it's true. So part one, 
here, 14 through 17, um, is going to, to, there's two parts to her answer, one for the nation and one for him personally. And the last couple verses that we'll look at is for him personally. So, so first, notice Huldah confirms, as a prophetess, she's just saying what Deuteronomy says. I like this. This is what prophets ought to do. They ought to just say what the Bible says. Yes, and she's just practically quoting the word. So she's just kind of extrapolating by God's gift to her, you know, and or proclaiming the word of the Lord as it is already written. There's nothing new there. She's just saying, yes, exactly what you just read is going to happen. Because since Judah and Jerusalem has not repented, they're not, they're still doing their idolatrous thing. Then judgment will come because the word of the Lord is true. And so that's kind of what prophecy is about. Did you know in the New Testament, the word for prophecy and prophet comes from two words just to mean to speak for in behalf of. So anybody who proclaims or teaches the Bible is prophesying biblically. All right, so there is that, of course, the understanding that prophesying has to do with revealing something in the future, which by and large, it's more of the proclaiming what's already there, a forthtelling. Forthtelling, not foretelling, but it includes both. But the more the, the prevalence is the forthtelling. Of, uh, of just kind of interpreting what is already given to us in the Bible. What's really uh, seriously, sadly, prophesying, you know, has been so abused and so misused. You just turn on the television. I mean, I, there are hundreds of names of false prophets. Uh, it, you just Google them. They're every wind of doctrine, manipulating all kinds of terrible things. Uh, in the name of the Lord. And I'm telling you what, all hell is going to break loose on, on those kind. In, in to, to, to prophesy falsely was one of the worst crimes in the Old Testament. It was instant death sentence. Uh, to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, and it not be him. Oh, he takes that so personally because you're leading people astray. And so there's going to be a lot of judgment there. Sadly, this whole idea, you know, I, I, I bet half of you have been abused by this kind of, you know, even if it was well-intentioned, it's not biblical and it's hurtful. If it's not biblical, it's hurtful. So you have people just speaking anything, you know, guys will stand up on the platform and start pulling people out and saying, I've seen this with my own eyes. You know, sir, come on up here. Now you have trouble with your back. And the guys say, I saw this. The guy says, no, I don't have any back trouble. Well, just humble yourself right then and there and say, well, you know, I just had this thought and da, 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 da. But no, has to push it, you know, because he's on, he's got the guy right in front of everybody. All of these things, you know, Chuck Smith, had a, Chuck Smith had a saying before he went home to be with the Lord. He used to say to people, he said, God told me to tell you. And he'd say, just stop right there. God knows exactly where I live. He's got my address, telephone number, email address, the whole nine yards. If he wants to communicate to me, he knows how to do that. But thank you very much. Because, you know, if you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit 
to encourage somebody or to say something to somebody. You don't need to say and preface it with God told me to tell you. My professors used to tell me, if you think you have something that's inspired to tell somebody from God, you don't have to say anything to preface it. It will just be obvious because it'll have the anointing of God. It'll have the weight. It it will be from him. You don't have to say, well, what what if you're wrong? That's why you should never say, God told me to tell you. You can can phrase it so much softer than that. I just really feel prompted to encourage you with this scripture here. That's nice. If you're wrong, what if you are wrong? I had people for years tell me wrong things. God told me to tell you. And I was young enough to just get confused by it. Nobody's going to tell me that now and confuse me. Because <laughs> they're going to get a mouthful. <laughs> Discerning his voice. Is it biblical? Is it theologically sound? Is it loving, holy, true, morally above reproach? Is it confirmed by godly counsel? Is it spiritually helpful to others? Is it edifying? Is it redemptive? Does it honor Jesus? Does it point people to God? Does it result in goodness? Does it shine the light on you or shine the light on him? Um, Does it bring you closer to Christ? Does it make you more like him? One last quote on this subject here. The safest place to hear God's voice and know his will is in his word and proper sound exposition of the scriptures. As we fully yield our lives to him and seek to serve him and please God, he reveals to us his will as we live in community with his people, the people of God. Let's finish up 18 through 20 and then we're done. Tell the king of Judah, by the way, part two, who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I've spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your father's And you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see this disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. So number five, lastly, responding to his will. The thing that makes or breaks us always is the response, not not just hearing. You'll notice in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus is saying, whoever listens to, to my teaching and puts my words into practice, right? It's like a man or a woman who builds their house on the foundation. Uh, The winds and the storms of life come, but in the end, that house stands. But the person who hears my words but doesn't respond, you know how that goes. No foundation, storms come, and great as a disaster, it's a wreck. They both hear the word. They both know the word. They both can probably quote the word. They were both in Sunday school. They were both in the 
sermon. They were both there. One responded, one didn't. One said, oh, that's pretty good. That was good. You know, all kinds of conclusions, but no response. It's the response. Even if it's, he's moved. He didn't even get up and do any good works. The Lord just says, hey, I noticed you heard that. You really had a connection. And you wept. You were, you were moved. And I saw that. Your tears meant something to me. And I am going to arrange it so that this judgment and you do not ever meet. That's an amazing thing. The, the, what, the judgment we're talking about is 586 when Judah goes away forever and there's no more Israel left. Gone for 2,000 years. So it's a big judgment for God to say, because this guy cried, because this guy cried in faith in my presence, you tore, you're upset. Hey, listen, I saw that and it matters to me and I'm going to arrange things around your life so that you're not going to have to experience that. Just saying. Thank you for responding. Wow. It always benefits you to respond. Don't just say, oh, that was a good message tonight in your head or this morning or whenever it is you hear something on a podcast or whatever. Don't just, just think, learn to start thinking, how must I respond in light of the truth that I just heard that the Holy Spirit revealed to my heart? You must ask those things of yourself because there are hundreds and hundreds of Christians who hear messages all day long. They're Bible scholars, but they don't respond they know about it, but they don't do anything about it. Don't you let that happen to you. So, yes, judgment. Uh, Huldah has a word of knowledge. First Corinthians chapter 12 is when she, she, God is revealing to her something that, that is hidden from King Josiah, and she's going to operate in that. And she does so. Um, in, the, in the proper way. So 23 years after Josiah, Josiah dies, uh, that's when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes in and destroys the temple, takes all the Jews left. Israel's gone. The 10 tribes are gone to Assyria. And he's gonna come in and take the, la- the last Jews away, where they will be gone for 2,000 534 years until May of 1948. And in your lifetime or your parents' lifetimes, we were around to see the miracle restoration of a nation that had not come together again from that date that Nebuchadnezzar comes in and levels. Well, there's a remnant that comes back in 70 years, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks because we're going to be in... in Ezra and Nehemiah. So a remnant comes back and rebuilds the wall, rebuilds the temple, but it's going to go down again in AD 70, right? So, so just an amazing prophecy. Um, and, uh, but the, the full-on disaster, Jos- Josiah's not going to see. One last observation about God working around Josiah's faith and response in his judgment. Here it is, uh, uh, a, a nice little comment. God's distinction between a man who responds and a nation around him that does not 
is a truth that is in keeping with the last day judgment known as the Great Tribulation and Armageddon. Those not responsible for the world's moral decline, rebellion against God and rejection of Christ will not see the judgment coming upon the disobedient, but rather it, they are promised to be spared. And so, yeah, we have grief every day. Don't you tear your robe every day? Every day I watch CNN or, or Fox News. Every, every single day, there's enough that goes into your ear that just you want to rend your heart wide open, right? And because we have that reaction, it demonstrates that we are believers and that we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord shall be gathered up. I like that. You shall be gathered to your people. We will be gathered to our people and meet the Lord in the air because we're not going to do to, we are going to be spared the hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. That's a quote, Revelation chapter three, verse 10, speaking to the church, I will spare you from the hour of great tribulation that is coming upon the whole earth. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51. So praise the Lord for that. So here, here, here it is. Number one, walking in God's ways. Following in the footsteps of people who love God show that we have God as our Father. Number two, doing God's work. Day in and day out, we must be about our Father's business, serving him and his interest in everything we do. Number three, knowing God's word. Making it our ambition to know the scriptures so we can know what God requires of us. Number four, hearing God's voice. Seeking out God's will for our lives as he speaks through his word and through his people. And lastly, number five, responding to his will. It benefits us in every way to respond to God's word. We neglect it or ignore it to our own peril. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love. Thank you for your long suffering with us. And thank you that it's your heart that all come to the knowledge of the truth and are saved. Thank you, Father, just for your amazing grace and your wonderful love. Help us to understand it, Lord, that our hearts be set free by your truth to do your will. May the, the insights that you revealed to our hearts tonight elicit a response from us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.